Welcome to One More Time, a wind band podcast. I'm Mercedes Maglio, and today we're going to be talking about the wind band world and its impact on gender identity, how gender plays a role in education, success, and career opportunities, what obstacles certain musical fields present to certain gender identities, and what we can do moving forward to make our classrooms and stages a brave space for all. Today's story was produced by Mercedes Maglio, Elizabeth Bieber, Mike Tulio, and Louis Yaki. Today, along with other stories, Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archives and Center for American Music, will introduce us to three differing case studies, women in the time of Sousa who challenged the traditional gender stereotypes. Mr. Sousa's band was principally an all-male ensemble. Among the players, there were women who performed with the band. There were 204 women musicians who played with the band between 1893 and 1931. And what was considered proper for women musicians at the time? Women, um, if they were going to perform, they should play ladylike instruments. The violin, um, the piano, um, the harp, um, or sing. He has five cellists, okay? And quite frankly, you know, well, musicians, of course, have to play the cello between their legs. You know, that's not particularly, um, in 19th century standards, a ladylike pose to, you know, have to balance this large string instrument between your legs. Um, but nevertheless, we have five cellists. He had two women soloists who played the cornet, and the cornet was considered an unladylike instrument to play. How else do we see gender stereotyping against the women in Sousa's band? There were situations where the women were, um, you know, as I said, very talented uh, musicians that may have not fit the um, imagined um, visual model for mm-hmm. what would be an attractive woman on stage as a, as a performer. Um, one of the um, sopranos, whose name escapes me right at this moment, her size was um, very much uh, like many of the larger men on the ensemble. Mm-hmm. And so the reviewers... Um, actually do not talk about her musical abilities. In fact, they focused only on her appearance. And they took her to task at not being ladylike enough, being more male in, um, in physicality. Now let's transition to Helen May Butler and the Tama Ladies Orchestra. Helen Mae Butler, who's often described as the the female version of Mr. Sousa, um, an extraordinary musician um, who had a women's orchestra, um, which was later reformulated as a, a wind band. In 1920, when the 19th Amendment was passed, Helen's ensemble was essentially one of 30 women's ensembles that all perform celebratory concerts to essentially recognize that this right to vote had been passed. And um, it's quite extraordinary because, you know, women's ensembles were still kind of a new thing um, that, you know, literally no one really considered a legit ensemble. And here we have the Women's Orchestra of Chicago. That's a, an entirely established women's ensemble. Um, you Helen's ensemble. And, oh, there were several others. And they're all recognizing and performing in public. 
um, both wind bands and string ensembles. And for the most part, they were all women ensembles. There wasn't a mixture of it. So um, you think about it, um, Helen's group, um, you know, Toma Orchestra, uh, before it becomes the Helen May Butler a military band, um, literally is at, at the forefront of women's ensembles and establishing a precedent um, for um, women's ensembles to be legit. Um, in 1903, um, Helen's band wins first prize um, at the Women's Exposition. There are um, eight bands who compete for that award, and um, her band comes out on top. Now, while the award was nice to receive, she felt especially gratified because years before, when she wanted to study conducting, she went to a band director and asked if he could help teach her how to conduct. And the band director said, no, a woman's place is at home, not on a stage. Well, the band that loses to Helen's ensemble is that very same band. And she felt gratified to know that I did not have to put up with the nonsense of this band director who said a woman's place, a woman's ensemble place, is solely at home. Lastly, let's discuss Krill's Women's Orchestra of Chicago. For those people who aren't familiar, um, Bomer Krill was a cornetist in the Sousa Band. While Krill was playing um, in Sousa's band, he has his own band, too, to help manage. And um, he was caught stealing Sousa's music from the Sousa Band library for his own. So Mr. Krill's tenure with the Sousa Band was relatively brief um, because he was fired. He, um, eight years later, um, forms what we know as Krill's Women's Symphony Orchestra. Um, it was formed and managed between 1943 and 1949. And it was touted as essentially an all-women's orchestra. Well, the real challenge here is while it was marketed as an all-women's ensemble, he also included men within it. Um, men to play certain parts that he didn't think the women could play as well. So you've got this kind of gender stare, double standard, you know, for Krill's orchestra. Krill was forming this women's ensemble more out of a need um, to stay employed, making money, um, and finding a technique. As you could probably imagine, while Mr. Krill um, had a difficult time um, with you know, the Sousa when he was caught stealing stuff. Mm -hmm. Krill was not, you know, he was not an easy person to play under. Demanding, crotchety, um, not particularly polite, short-tempered. Of course, Anna Faye Heron um, was a music student, oboist, um, and um, she was invited to um, join the, the orchestra Anna was, a, she was a music educator, and that's what she was studying. Um, and um, she was really well organized. Now, Mr. Krill has an ensemble of women musicians who he really doesn't have a whole lot of respect for. He would always demand rehearsals would start at a specific time or go to a specific time. So the musicians would show up and he'd be late. Mm -hmm. And the the orchestra would sit and twiddle their thumbs and so forth. And the story goes that after about the fifth day of this kind of situation, um, Anna stood up, got on the podium, and started rehearsing in the orchestra. And unknown to her, Mr. Krill, as she's rehearsing the orchestra, comes in through the back of the auditorium, and the orchestra sees that Mr. Krill has come into the, the, the auditorium, and they figure he's just going to yell at her, because no woman had conducted the orchestra before. 
But he didn't do that. He sat down at the back of the auditorium and let her run the rehearsal from beginning to end. And when she finished and said that, you know, I think we're all we're set for this, she looked up at the rest of the musicians and noticed they were all staring at the back of the auditorium. And when she turned around, she saw Mr. Krill at the back. And Mr. Krill then put his hand up, took a finger, and said, come here. At which point she says, okay, he's going to yell at me. I'm going to get fired. So she stepped off the podium, went to the back of the auditorium, and said, Mr. Krill asked, where did you learn to conduct rehearsals? She says, well, watching you and my other teachers. And he says, good. From now on, you're the assistant director of the orchestra, and you can conduct the rehearsals for me. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of the discussion. And for the rest of her time, that was one of her responsibilities. She quickly came from oboist to manager to the person who's trying to keep everything going. Um, again, it, it highlights a, a critical point, you know, that a woman who sticks to her guns on her musical abilities um, really shows that women can do things as well or better than mm -hmm. men. Um, I don't think Mr. Krill would ever admit to that, but I think the reality is that was the case. Yeah, it seems to me that Krill's motivation wasn't necessarily in like encouraging women in the professional world. It was just make money and maybe be a little lazy about it in a way. Um, essentially, yeah, exploiting <laughs> women um, yeah. to help you know, you know, help um, keep paychecks coming in. Yeah, yeah, and I know you wrote in your article about this um, on the SUSE website that he doubted women's abil musical abilities, and yet a lot of them still had successful careers after that. Um, you know, he's basically a, a, a white guy um, just, you know, figuring, you know, ladies will never be the equivalent of men, you know, in the musical realm. It's a continuing challenge that we in the music world continue to face uh, and some just want to latch on to that old stereotype a lot of this is like when we're talking about Sousa's female soloists and Helen May Butler and the women in Krill's orchestra they had to fight a lot of obstacles and they still you know land in the positions that they they were in so it's really a testament to how strong-willed a lot of these women are absolutely um, I think um, great musicians are Driven, mm -hmm. um, driven by uh, a desire to present their craft in the best possible way and to express themselves. It's that adaptability, that, that creative impulse mm -hmm. that um, you find in the women soloists of the Sousa Band, the adaptability uh, of Helen's um, ensemble. Um, the musicians in Krill's Chicago Women's Orchestra. Mm -hmm. uh, they're adaptable. Um, mm -hmm. and, and their principal driver is the art and their way to express themselves through that mm -hmm. art. For this edition of Two Minute Rehearsal Techniques, we have David Thornton, the Assistant Professor of Music, Associate Director of Bands, and Director of the Spartan Marching Band at Michigan State University. In our rehearsal process, I think one of the most important rehearsal tools is this idea of directed listening. As the conductor and the leader of the ensemble, I feel like it's my responsibility to share with the students and the ensemble members as much about the piece as possible. And the best way to do that is by directed listening and using our ears to hear what the composer is telling us. Um, elements of the music that we can discover with our ears could be melodic elements, could be harmonic elements, could be rhythmic elements, could be formal elements. All of those concepts and tools that the composer are 
use to put the piece together, we can discover, and it's, and it's critical to our fundamental performance. One aspect of this is uh, also is sharing these musical ideas with the audience as the audience is going to experience the music by listening. So as we go through our rehearsal process together, I think it's incredibly important that we try and help our ensemble members experience and hear those musical elements in the most detailed way possible. And so my job um, from the podium is to help identify those moments as much as possible. And then that gives an opportunity for the ensemble members to mark them in their part, um, take notes for perhaps outside sectionals, um, or give them other things to think about and consider as they are experiencing the music themselves. Directing listening can also apply to outside of rehearsal as um, oftentimes we post rehearsal recordings and give them an opportunity to reflect on what, what was heard and what needs to be heard um, moving ahead as we continue to prepare for upcoming performances. But the idea that music um, is a listening art form is incredibly important and something that we should not forget as we um, work together on a daily basis. If you can't hear it, you're not going to be able to play it. And if we can't hear it in the rehearsal, then it's probably going to get lost in the performance as we share our music with the audience. The history of the wind band is deeply intertwined with ideas of gender, and with that comes many ingrained practices, stereotypes, and beliefs that influence all of us. With this in mind, we heard the honest stories of Emma Joy Jampol, music educator and PhD candidate of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Amy McCabe, a cornetist and gunnery sergeant in the president's own Marine Band, and our very own Dr. Megan Egan-Jones, a lecturer in musicology here at the University of Illinois. I realized um, that I was trans about coincidentally with learning the, that the genders were called boy and girl and what that meant. And I was at around age three and a half. Um, and so uh, for a while, it was just kind of in the back of my head because being three and a half, I didn't do a lot of gender things. You know, I kind of hung around with my mom and uh, played. So, but when I went to school, it became very apparent that boys and girls were very different. So. Um, although I realize it now, I didn't realize at the time, school is really a place where gender is um, constructed and policed. And uh, so um, that was something that troubled me. Uh, I knew, though, that um, even though everyone treated me as a boy, I knew very firmly that I was a girl. And I also knew very firmly that I needed to keep that secret. Uh, so I didn't really share that with anyone at all. It was just kind of my fantasy, and um, it actually animated um, a lot of my uh, prayer and religious belief, uh, which which wasn't a huge component of my life, but it was a piece of it. So I got the clarinet, and it was actually one of those old metal clarinets, which um, I think have gone away now because plastic clarinets are available. But when I started, it was 1959 uh, or 1960, and I uh, started on a metal clarinet, and it was terrible, and I didn't practice very much. There's so much back pressure. I just didn't play very well. And um, But in any event, uh, it came the end of third grade and the teacher, uh, third grade band, my second grade year, and the teacher asked who wanted to continue on. And I liked playing in band. I just didn't really enjoy the music part of it. But the part of it, and this is where the gender begins to be, um, I was realizing that the boys and girls were treated differently. Um, and the boys were certainly encouraged in uh, sports and athletics, which didn't really appeal to me. I just really prefer to read and listen to music. So 
playing in band was a chance to go and be, uh, first of all, doing something that seemed like girls and boys would both do rather than something that was just for boys. So that was appealing regardless of what the substance was. All of a sudden, I became like the best bass player in my high school and adequate sax player. And then my band director asked me if I want to play bassoon. Well, I knew that would put me in the nerd group with the girls that I really wanted to be like, you know, um, Yvonne, the cello player, you know, <laughs> Jenny, the viola player. I could be with them playing my bassoon. And so it just took me a little further into the gendered nature of woodwinds. So here I was playing bass with these boys and all the girls liked us because we were boys who played rock music. And then at school, I would be playing woodwinds with all the girls, feeling very comfortable with what I perceived as my peer group. So I very much used band and orchestra as a place to play out my fantasy. I would be sitting there looking like a boy, being called by a boy's name, but imagining myself in a skirt and trying to be in the same posture as the other girls in my section. Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up uh, south of Chicago in the Kankakee area um, and went to Hersher High School and um, played in all of the middle school, high school bands, marching band, show choirs and things, and um, went to college and decided not to study music after that. But I still played in all the ensembles, and that was at Illinois Wesleyan University. And while I was there, I saw a poster up for the um, Disney Collegiate All-Star program, which was, you know, a, basically a summer job at Disney World working in, you know, the orchestra or the jazz band. And um, I auditioned and I got in. And when I was there, it was uh, the first time I really had been exposed to the idea that you could be a professional trumpet player. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, we were making just pennies while we were down there, but performing and getting a paycheck was like this new concept to me. And so then right at the very end of my senior year at Illinois Wesleyan, I got a little more serious about uh, performing and wanted to keep playing. And at that time, um, there was a Broadway show called Blast that was happening. A lot of people from the drum corps field kind of wove into that group. Um, and having that experience playing at the Disney College Band inspired me to audition for Blast as well. And I had some other friends that were, were trying to do it. And um, and I got into that right after my senior year. So it was kind of the, the perfect um, interlude right after my senior year of college was to go on the road and tour professionally with a show all over the United States and Japan, Canada um, for, I think I did that for about three years. Um, and, you know, just uncertainties abounded. I mean, this was all post 9-11, which, you know, the Broadway world had taken quite a big hit at that point. And um, I was just really hungry to learn more about um, orchestral playing and, um, you know, winning a different type of job, whether it was in a military band or, you know, an orchestra. And so that inspired me to go back to grad school because I knew I just needed to learn how to play the trumpet better and learn how to win an audition. And um, I got into Northwestern University at that point and uh, studied with Barbara and Charlie and, um, and then uh, won the Marine Band job soon quite after that. So, and I've been here now for 14 years. I just hit my 14 year mark and um, it's been great. It's been a wonderful life and career out here in Washington, DC. And um I use my personal leave time to go play with other orchestras and uh, chamber music projects that are happening constantly all the time. So I have a really lovely full performing life, which I didn't even know I could have. <laughs> so um, that's that's my story, basically. Yeah, a little bit about my background as a musician. I came to college thinking I was going to be an engineer and somehow ended up majoring in composition by the end of that process. But I was taking a bunch of music classes my first year of college, just as, uh, you know, as gen eds, you know, just as kind of passing interest. 
And I was really hooked by uh, a course that I took on world music, a course that I took on music history, and ultimately decided that I wanted to declare a second major. Um, I'd been composing on the side and playing piano and oboe for years. And so I ended up transitioning into, uh, joined a piano studio and joined the Double Reed studio. And by the time I graduated, I was playing in three or four different ensembles uh, pretty continuously. We didn't have a large school of music. This was Iowa State. And so anybody who was playing a double reed instrument was pretty essential to any ensemble that was going to need double reeds. And so I did get a lot of experience playing in large ensembles, including wind bands and orchestras. Um, my like The short version of my journey as a non-binary person is um, I wasn't really out of the closet until I was in my mid-20s. And so while I knew that I was non-binary, obviously well before that, I wasn't public about that until I was a graduate student. And this is actually the first year that I have begun using they, them, theirs pronouns in, uh, in my professional life. I had been using them in my kind of casual personal life before that. Uh, for a long time, I felt very aware of the risks associated with using those pronouns and identifying professionally as non-binary, especially because of the contexts in which I was first employed. Uh, the first place that I got a job after finishing graduate school was in a, a very politically and socially conservative area, um, I was the only person on the faculty that was openly a member of the LGBTQ community in general, and I would regularly encounter uh, narratives where my space and belonging in that context were um, perceived as invalid, and so it didn't feel like a safe space to be openly using non-binary pronouns. So I honestly am really grateful to be working at this institution, it's been, frankly, through a lot of encouragement from the students that I felt finally comfortable to use they, them, their pronouns um, openly and in public. So honestly, like I, not to like go on on a long uh, tangent, but my very first semester here, I had a student that um, they must have had a, a, like a phenomenal gaydar, but they came to my office. It was the first week of class and just basically sat down and within five minutes of the conversation were challenging me with, well, if they, them, their pronouns are accurate for you, why don't you use them professionally? And at that point it was, you know, well, I don't know how much of this like deep background, you know, traumatic history I really need to get into with, uh, you know, a student that I just met. But, um, but yeah, it's been, it's certainly been a process for me and it's been a process not only of self-acceptance, but also of um, moving into spaces where I feel comfortable and confident and non-threatened um, with expressing who I am in an authentic way. So, I want to tie this now to a little bit of research. Um, Randall Everett Alsop at Teachers College has talked about the band room as a, a safe space for gay kids. And he quickly notes, I think it's a 2016 article in, uh, I can't remember if it was the Bulletin or the Journal, but uh, one of the, one of the I, th I wanna say, I think it was the Bulletin of, um, of the Council of Research in Music Education uh, in 2016. He, he wrote about how it wasn't so much a safe space in the band room as it was a less dangerous space for a gay kid. And I kind of felt that way a little bit about all of school. Uh, school is such a gendered place and um, band and orchestra were still fraught, but they were a less dangerous space. So I felt like Professor Alsop said it really well. So the article that Alsip was quoting is something that a lot of pretty much every gender scholar in music has read. Um, but um, there are other people who've talked about this too. Jason Silvera has written about um, the tension in music and the fine arts generally, but particularly in music activities, uh, between the need to perform 
and uh, that being a safe space because the gender performance is part of your performance, but also the tension of being in a gendered environment for trans kids. And so um, there is some research that kind of points up pretty much everything that I've said uh, about young children's awareness of um, gendered, young trans children's awareness of gender dysphoria. Um, Kennedy and Helen have written about that. And of course, I've mentioned Alsip and Nichols and Silvera with respect to gender. Um, so um, I guess just what I want to say about, about this is that my own personal experience is that Ban provided me a place to live one life in, in my interior um, that was a very feminine life while still being able to perform masculinity sufficiently to not be branded as freakish in my school. You know, it's very interesting. Um, I feel like I've had to be more self-reflective as this has kind of become a bigger topic in recent years, or at least social media has made it that. But, um, you know, looking back, you know, just talking about that, the blast gig right out of school, and even Disney College Band, you know, they had a quota, I believe it was never really spoken about, but um, in the Disney Band, they had to have four women or at least two women because of the rooming situation. And so you had to be paired up with, with people. And so I played a lot of uh, fourth trumpet. I was in the big band and um, I didn't really improvise, but I was like the quote classical chair and which also became jokingly known as the girl chair because every year they would generally have a female in that fourth <laughs> trumpet spot. Um, so it's kind of funny how everything started getting pigeonholed at that point where it's like, oh, we need a female here. Let's, you know, put put her into this position. And um, in Blast, it was kind of similar. I know that they just wanted like a diverse crew of people, whatever that looked like. And um, so there were a handful of women that played in the brass section, but we were definitely the minority at that point as well, too. Um and then that, you know, the trickle down effect of that, of how many people are playing professionally in the wind band world now, it's, you know, getting more and more, there's more females, especially out in Washington, DC now, but I mean, in the orchestra world, it's pathetic. <laughs> you know, there's very, very few women in trumpet sections. You know, the brass section is a little better with horns and trombones in there, but it's, you know, it's not very many. <laughs> and I think at that point that when I was there, we, it was 50-50. Um, and some people, you know, I think, you know, I studied with Charlie and his uh, wife, Barbara was the other teacher. And he always made jokes about saying like, oh, everybody thinks we have so many women in our trumpet studio because of Barbara. And he's like, that's not true at all. Like we just took the best players that came to the audition <laughs> and, and it just kind of happened to be 50, 50. So, um, yeah, we've had a lot of women come through the studio and that are still playing professionally today. So. A lot of it is very like silent and um, kind of unconscious at this point because we've come a really long way. I mean, if you talk to people who worked, you know, 30 years ago, like Susan Slaughter in the St. Louis Symphony, she would have a very different story than somebody like myself. Um, so, I mean, things that I've seen just, you know, when I do clinics with high school bands or college programs and things, um, it's a lot of like, um, just, you know, not... I would say like, it would bother me if I heard um, directors or conductors or teachers using um, adjectives, masculine and feminine, like, can you play that more masculine in a masculine way instead of saying like, to the fore or whatever that word means to you? Um, you know, or playing something feminine means dainty and sweet or soft or something. Um, because then all of a sudden, you're saying, okay, well then I need to be dainty and soft and sweet in order to play an instrument. And that means it's going to be the flute or the oboe or whatever. And so I think that's kind of um, some of that gendered verbiage has been something I've heard and it's bothered me over the years. Um, in the professional world, sometimes there's also a casual throwing around of terms. Um, you know, I'm sure you've all heard of them and I, I won't say them on the podcast, but just saying, anything um like x to the wall or don't be a blank while you play um those 
terms just (laughs) used to go in one ear and out the other ear. And now I'm like, okay, that just, we need to stop that because it's, it's the unconscious thing that keeps propagating, you know, females not feeling uncomfortable or, you know, whatever. Um, the kind of the big experience I had participating in wind bands was I played in the wind ensemble at Iowa State University for, I, I think, three out of the four years that I was there. And I, I do feel extremely fortunate in that um, while the conductor was a cisgender white male, he was very attuned to just a lot of different kinds of issues of diversity and representation within the space. Um, he spoke very openly about um, like taking a kind of a feminist and queer informed approach to speaking about gender in that space. He made a a featuring works by female and non-binary and otherwise LGBTQ members. Um, A performance of those works was a priority in his ensemble. And so I feel like in the, like the grand scope of experiences in wind ensembles, I maybe seriously lucked out. Um, Yeah. I just have a lot of gratitude to uh, to him in in that experience. So he, he was ready to sort of, I think, engage in a conversation that I wasn't ready for yet. And and the kinds of conversations that he was having around the repertory that we were performing were conversations. I was sort of just beginning to hedge on myself as being, you know, able to be comfortable talking about those subjects. That certainly was not my experience universally in large ensembles. That was sort of an unusual case, but it was the specifically the case I had with a wind band very difficult to talk about queer identities with respect to early music in particular, because oftentimes the conversation around that music is a conversation of absence rather than inclusion and sort of dialogues. You know, for instance, you all looked at the, um, the, the rules and the art of courtly love as a treatise on love relationships that have form- informed, you know, the composition of uh, Troubadour and Trouvere songs. Uh, there's a lot of conversation there that is very decidedly homophobic. And so I think there's a conversation to be had around that, which is, you know, like clearly there were present and tangible members of society who were shaping that poetry, who were LGBTQ persons, but the way that they would have self-identified in that period is just so astronomically different than the way we would think about it and code those identities now. Um, And so it's certainly something, it's a challenge that I face working with the earlier repertories that, um, it becomes, I think, more of a tangible point of exploration when the way in which those identities are nuanced sort of resembles the way in which we would nuance those identities. It makes it easier to kind of latch on to, like, what is the conversation we can have around these identities right now? Um, but something that I, I really care about deeply is, uh, to the best extent possible, having a broad representation of gender identities in with respect to any music that I'm covering Um, And so you've probably noticed with the early music that's meant, including a lot of ostensibly female artists, female composers of the earlier repertories. Yes. Um, and the, 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 the two takeaways here are that um, the second one first, as the late Groucho Marx would say, is that I do have some practical suggestions. But the first thing is, uh, with respect to research about uniforms and everything else related to gender and wind band, is that there's virtually no research. Um, the uh, only pieces that I've been able to find that really mention wind band are the ones that I've mentioned, the Nichols and uh, to some extent the Alsip. And everything else that deals with transness in band is um, pretty much about vocal music. Now there's plenty about gender and band. Most of what I've seen in the research there has to do with instrument selection. So 
Um, one thing there, and now we're going to the practical suggestions about instrument suggestions, uh, and then we can come back to uniforms. Um, when kids are recruited, how are the instruments project, uh, presented? So um, most typically, this is either going to be a recording or the teacher is playing or an older student or a representative from the music store. And because of the people who are... Um, professional players and teachers, uh, we do wind up with mostly women showing string instruments and upper woodwinds and mostly men showing brass and percussion. And so, uh, in other words, the, um, the structures of the past become the structures of the future, if you will. Um, and so, uh, so, one approach would be to work with representation. Uh, if you're showing videos of people playing instruments, teachers might consciously strive for uh, more diverse representations. And the ones I like to think of are, uh, for example, Isaac Perlman on violin or uh, Esperanza Spalding on bass or Evelyn Glennie on percussion. Um, and it, you can think of your own. I'm, I may be giving ones that are already dated, but I think those are still solid. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, another thing, when I was working in public school, um, we had, uh, at first, several elementary schools. So it was a large district where we uh, were recruiting at the various schools. And then ultimately, we wound up cluster siting and recruiting at a middle school that had the whole district at grade level. And so we'd recruit in grade five. We had them all under one roof. And so all those teachers were on faculty there. So we made a conscious effort. We had three instrumental teachers. There was a man who was the orchestra teacher. There was a woman who taught band. And then there was me looking like and working as a man and teaching band. And so we made a conscious effort that of the two male presenting teachers, we would do the strings in the upper woodwind. And of the female presenting teacher, we would uh, play the brass instruments. And this would be on... Um, on the recruiting presentations that we do for kids and parents, just to just to kind of be a real life example. Early in my career, I used to point that out. See, a man can play a flute, but um, that felt heavy handed and artificial. So instead, we just jam together. I feel like a while ago, and this wasn't in the Marine Band, but like if I would get called for a gig, I would generally not be put on principal. And I've I've had a lot of experience playing principal, and I do it quite a bit now. And um, but like if the contractor didn't know me specifically, they might, you know, assume that somebody else or this, I don't know. There's like a hundred reasons. Um, um, that would be like one thing that I have experienced. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like. I just, I really try to put my head down and just do the job. You know, Barbara Butler, my teacher was amazing at reminding everyone that the trumpet doesn't have a gender, you know, that's why the trumpet is so awesome because you have to have so a huge spectrum of personality within the trumpet. It's, you know, neither male nor female and it's in between and all of the things. And it, that's why I love it so much because you can just be all of these characters and I, you know, any instrument can probably do that. But with the trumpet, there is just this true vocal quality that can, that is genderless. And so um, I think that's something that's always inspired me to kind of just keep my head down and do the work. You know, I try to always show examples of trumpet players of all walks of life and always include females, you know, minorities, anything. That way you don't, you know, picture, you know, a certain type of person as a trumpet player. You know, we kind of like have to normalize it a little bit, I think. Um, so, and, and just presenting to them lots of different people that play the trumpet. Um, also, again, encouraging young people to um, get outside their box a little bit. I've Something that I've noticed in my own playing is I often have been called out for 
playing too loud and aggressive. And I think it's kind of like a compensating thing that's kind of maybe happened over the years of not wanting anyone to think that I am a weak player or I'm a woman and I can't make it. And so like I have overcompensated with my endurance and, you know, my volume and all these sorts of different things. But encouraging, you know, if you see a young girl, if she's in fifth and sixth grade and it's her first year to kind of explore new levels, you know, whether she's, you know, kind of reticent to play loud, but like encourage her to go that direction, but also the opposite, you know, and say that you can play soft and beautiful too. Um, and same with the guys too. encourage them to like have that, have the opposite, you know, whatever skill that they're maybe more likely inclined to have. So, um, yeah, a lot of it kind of comes down to personality, I think, too. You know, some people are just quieter and they prefer like a more introverted instrument or sound or something. But um, I think with trumpet, you just need to have this full gamut. So um, encouraging that at a young age would be my recommendation. I, I guess for me, my, my mind, first of all, goes to sort of two areas where this conversation unfolds. And one of them has to do with materials and the other one has to do with experiences. And so I sort of feel when I'm designing a class or working on a lesson and I'm, I'm, I'm focused on inclusivity of, you know, yeah, when I'm focused on the mission of inclusivity, I'm thinking not only about, you know, do the materials include works that are associated with artists of different identities, but is the experience that the students are having with those works open to interface among different identities. And so let's say, for instance, I'm talking about a, um, a Spanish cantiga from the late 14th century, which is openly anti-Semitic. Is it possible to talk about that material without it being extremely offensive to any Jewish person in the class? And for it to be an opportunity to learn something uh, in, in that instance, perhaps to learn something about how to engage with the many problems that we face looking at different historic repertories that are openly exclusive. Yeah, another facet of this is, of course, the issue of intersectionality. And so it's it's obviously not enough to say, well, okay, I featured uh, 50% of the composers that I featured in my class were women. Well, what if they were all white women? Or what if they were all cisgender women? It's it's not, you know, it's it's not really looking at the full complex of the situation. And so that's something that I feel really challenged by with respect to 313 and 314 especially just like on the one hand they're supposed to be so comprehensive they're these courses are called the history of music and so that's a that's a huge landscape and it has a lot of opportunity but it also brings in a lot of problems if you're sort of proposing like this is the music that connects to everyone uh in terms of its nomenclature then it needs to fulfill that destiny in terms of its content and it's it seems like an almost impossible task for it to do that. Um, my mind goes to the kind of turn of the 20th century experimental modernist groups. Those were, that was a sort of social circumstance in which I see a lot of open expression amongst artists of LGBT, non-binary non identities um, being expressed in terms of the dress and in terms of the kind of dialogue. Um, it's, it always feels like a stretch to me to sort of say like, you know, what does, what does a lesbian identity sound like, you know, or like what does a non-binary identity sound like? And, and I've seen a fair number of studies that try to associate sounds with different gender identities. And I've also, I've always found that research to be really uncomfortable and problematic. I don't know if there's a way to sort of definitively say, you know, this, this gender identity is in this context expressed through this particular sound world. Um, but yeah, there were a number of circles of kind of small intellectual circles uh, moving around in the 1900s, 1920s, and um, a number of those same circles were, of course, targeted by Nazis and ended up in places like the United States. And so then after World War II, we see, I think, some of those same social circles having a pretty big impact in this country. Um, works like uh, uh, last year, what was the lyric theater piece that they did last year? Cabaret. Works like Cabaret seem to me to be very much kind of a response to that cultural atmosphere. One piece of advice, it would be, you know, if somebody is coming to you and saying, 
oh, I, I think I might be gay or I think I might be non-binary or I think I would prefer to use a different set of pronouns. Uh, I would say earnestly, take it seriously, get it right. It's not hard, you know, and it's such a risk for a person to come to someone else. Like even today, it, it, it feels more comfortable working in the environment that I'm working right now to sort of be the person that I am, but it's not easy. It still feels scary. And there are spaces where it, where that is, you know, you were saying how to create a brave space. I think that uh, there's a lot of work that allies can do to facilitate that by, by taking those comments very seriously, very earnestly. Thank you for listening to this episode of One More Time, a Win Band podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to share it on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands, or find us on Twitter at Illinois bands. You can always check out our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer of this episode is Dr. Anthony Messina. This episode was hosted and mixed by Mercedes Maglio. None of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty, Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Elizabeth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Scott Schwartz, David Thornton, Emma Joy Jampole, Amy McCabe, and Dr. Megan Egan-Jones for their contributions to this episode. We hope you will join us for our next episode of One More Time, a Wind Band Podcast.